This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the Commission of Fine Arts review of a number of proposed design concepts for the new $10 gold coin and accompanying silver medal, honoring the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Pilgrims at Plymouth in what would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In addition to talking about the fourth in a series of silver presidential medals. And if you are listening along and you have liked what you've heard so far, be sure to follow us on whatever your preferred podcast programming is, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or any of the others. Sign up. Be sure to follow us. uh, Tell your friends, even your enemies about it. That way we can continue to have fun doing this, bringing you all sorts of news and insights and discussions with some of the big names in the hobby and just have a blast having fun sharing this great hobby. Absolutely talk to your enemies about it. That is actually the group of people we've been shooting for. So if you could go ahead and do that, we would certainly appreciate it. In addition to the news recap, we also had a great interview with Kevin Foley, who organized the Central States Numismatic Convention that I attended this past week in Schaumburg, Illinois. We talked about how to set up a coin show, the kind of nuts and bolts logistics of it, and some of the qualities that make for a really fun and effective show. So we get a sort of, sort of a background look into the um, the thought process behind hosting a coin show. So the Commission of Fine Arts sat down this week to review concepts submitted by the Mint, which the Mint had solicited from a group of artists, for the design of a new $10 gold coin commemorating the 400th anniversary of the landing of the Pilgrims at Plymouth in what would eventually become the Massachusetts Bay Colony and later the state of Massachusetts and remains an historic site today. This $10 commemorative gold coin program actually represents a fairly significant departure from the usual process of congressional approval by which commemorative coin programs come into existence. Normally, Congress introduces and passes a piece of legislation which mandates the creation of a certain kind of a coin, whether it's denomination, the theme, all of the different aspects of a coin program normally is legislatively mandated. There's a piece of legislation that's introduced, passes, and the House and Senate it is assigned by the president, and then the Mint is then tasked with making the legislatively mandated coin a reality. In this case, the Secretary of the Treasury was actually the person, and the Treasury itself was the organization that promulgated this $10 commemorative gold coin, which allowed them to bypass Congress. There's no need for congressional approval. The Secretary of the Treasury simply directed the Mint to produce this, which reflects, we think, a desire to expedite the process of commemorating this fairly major anniversary in American history. Absolutely. Now, you said promulgated. That indeed is a $10 word in this context. (laughs) They should give me one of those coins. (laughs) What else do you have? So, in addition to the CFA, the Mint is releasing on May 6th the fourth in its series of presidential silver medals in the same way that the presidential dollar program sought to honor our past commanders-in-chief with circulating $1 coins, which I think many of us have found in circulation. These silver medals are being issued, again, in the same order as the president served to honor our previous commanders-in-chief. So, the fourth one being released on May the 6th, honors James Madison, our fourth president. And these silver medals are a perfect complement to the long-running series of bronze medals that the U.S. Mint has done for decades that depict all of the presidents from Washington through Obama. And those those bronze medals, only a handful remain available uh, through the Mint at present. But you can find examples at shows, through dealers, my favorite thing is uh, you often can find on eBay a group of them in a nice presentation folder that the Mint once sold. And you can generally find these for a dollar to two dollars each, sometimes as high as three or four, depending on the president and you know if you buy them piecemeal. But sometimes whole collections or major 
groupings of, of many of these medals come up for sale. It's a nice historical compliment, a nice item to get somebody who's interested in history to give them as a gift. Um, certainly would be a nice companion if you're getting the silver medals as well to see what has already been issued. You could even pair them with the bronze $10 replicas of the $10 first spouse gold coins. Gold or, I mean, the gold coins would be quite expensive, but you could do the bronze medal pairing as yeah, well if, yeah. you, if you wanted to. So first, that's, sp- first spouse medals are yes. indeed uh, cool. I have uh, mostly, a, almost a complete set, but there's a couple years that are rather cost prohibitive. But, mm, right. but in any event, the presidential medals are a neat, affordable, uh, in bronze, option for somebody who has an interest in maybe might not be aware that they exist. And you now have a silver option, and on May 6th, you'll be able to get James Madison's. So that means that now it's time for me to ask you a question, Jeff, and that's what is our trivia question for this episode? And that's not the trivia question. The Dang. trivia question is... That could have been a twofer. We're going to go to the land of Blarney and leprechauns and limericks and all that good stuff, Ireland. How did Irish gun money of 1689 get its name? So... This is the novice level question, so I expect that you'll know the answer when we share that in just a minute after we discuss the item of the week and uh, cool things we saw on social media. No pressure, but we do expect you to know, so just be prepared. Be prepared. All right. So the item of the week this week, I wanted to go back to April 29th, 1948. On that day, then U.S. Mint Director Nellie Taylor Ross distributed the first ceremonial examples of the Franklin Half Dollar at a Franklin Institute dinner. So as collectors, we're all familiar with the Franklin Half. We've seen them. Maybe if you're old enough, you even have encountered them in circulation. They made their debut ceremonially on April 29th, 1948, some 71 years ago. And so that's, I thought that was a nice little historical tidbit why we should uh, highlight the Franklin half this week as the item of the week. Very cool. And what's happening in the land of numismatic Facebook and numismatic Twitter? Both items this week are related and they revolve around a topic that has been quite in the news, and that is the recent fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The item from Twitter comes from at Castaldi Moneta, that's at C-A-S-T-A-L-D-I-M-O-N-E-T-E, and Numismatica Castaldi shared a wonderful graphic image of some commemorative coins that the Monet de Paris, the Paris Mint, French Mint in Paris, is issuing to use as a fundraiser to help pay for reconstruction of the almost completely fallen uh, landmark there in Paris. And how this works, the Mint is coming out with three coins, one silver, two gold, and a portion of the funds raised by the coins sales will be directed toward reconstruction efforts. In that way, it's very similar to our U.S. commemorative coin program where there is a recipient agency or organization that receives the surcharge that collectors end up paying. And in this case, the silver 10-euro coin, uh, there's going to be 5,000 of these, and each one will earn 20 euros toward the reconstruction. The gold 50 euro will raise 100 euros toward reconstruction, and the gold 200 euro coin will raise 300 euros per coin. So without bogging you down in the math, this turns out to a total of 225,000 euros raised if all coins are sold, and these are rather limited mintages, so it would be hard to imagine they do not sell given their limited mintages and their relevance to modern history with commemorating the the tragedy. If all the coins are sold, that will amount to a little more than a quarter of a million dollars U.S. raised toward the reconstruction. At this point, that's a sort of superfluous amount of money considering how many private donations they've already received, but – it's a way for somebody buying the coin to have another reason to buy the coin, perhaps. Sure. 
Sure. Related to this, there was a great post out there on Facebook right after the fire. It's something I shared uh, through my Facebook account, and that was images of about four different medals depicting the cathedral. It's a fantastic building. Both of you and I have been there, Chris, and we stood there and on, looked at you know all the the beautiful architecture and everything the the medals that i shared and there'll be a link to this and the tweet in the show notes are just gorgeous examples of the beauty of the cathedral and uh, really capture what some of what makes the place special and i just thought in that moment of of tragic history to to share images of the grandeur that could be found there before that fateful day was uh, was something neat to share so that was the um the social media post for facebook and then of course twitter was related as well all right which now means that we're going to go from france back over to ireland for our trivia answer this is actually one that Chris knows the answer to. Shockingly, so I know. Do you want to ask away, and I will I will so, answer on behalf of our listeners. How did Irish gun money of 1689 get its name? Irish gun money was so named because it was created with metal used from melting down cannons. Yes, that's a a fascinating period in you know the British Islands history. And there are some neat pieces. If you want to talk about uh, coins where you can really trace the origin of them, these are it. You can see, you know, when they were made and of what they were made and the context around which they were made. I- Irish gun money is a is a fantastically historical uh, item to collect and to be interested in. Absolutely. So good for you. Oh. You got it. And it dovetails well with the sort of. Anglo-Irish history as well of sort of the English Civil War and then Oliver Cromwell and all of that history. So it's, no, they're, they're great pieces. I've, I've always been interested in trying to find one, but they don't. You I don't have see one. Them. I have one. All right. Well, I'll have to try to track down my own because you don't, you don't see them too often. Absolutely. So. Speaking of all these tragedies and wars mm. and events that relate to numismatic commemorations, yeah. what do you think about the French Mint doing this fundraiser for the Cathedral for Notre Dame? And that's not not the only numismatic commemoration that has come out in wake of the tragedy. There's been a couple folks have sent uh, information regarding like colorized Euro coins and things that yeah. show different scenes. And, and some of that is, you know, obviously that's not directed at a truly numismatic market. No. But what, what do you think about the, the place in the the marketplace for those right. pieces and how they speak to the tragedy? And It's interesting because Notre Dame already had a f- pretty sizable numismatic and exo-pneumatic footprint. I can personally attest because I visited in the spring of 2017 when I was – when I visited Paris, I went to Notre Dame Cathedral and I, I walked through it and, and was duly impressed as I think a lot of people are by – its historical value and its beauty. And I bought myself a little set of Monet de Paris medals that they sell there, and I, I thought that'd be a fun little thing to have. Those are sold in, in fairly large numbers, and I imagine, I believe that they shift the design either yearly or every few years. And I don't know that they would sell those as you walk out if they didn't think that they would sell reasonably well. So, in addition to your Facebook post, which details a number of different depictions of it, uh, of Notre Dame, some of which are quite beautiful, it strikes me that it's already had a pretty significant footprint, and that adding these just colors in one more step in the history of the building and as far as the fundraising aspect of the French program selling these zero coins I understand it and I think that it's it's worthwhile in that you're getting a unique design and if you're buying them directly from the distributor then some of your money is going towards repairing it which I think there's there's some value and it makes the buyer feel connected to it that said I would be curious to know how that money is going to be spent given the enormous amount of money that's already been donated to the rebuilding effort I would want to 
put this in context, yes, the French Mint has for years celebrated the grand tourist sites, if you will, the grand landmarks of Paris especially, and and featured Notre Dame on many occasions and many coins, and private mints and distributors have done the same with stained glass coins and other, other things, you know, really beautiful pieces, and they can have meaning whether you've been there or not. You mentioned the pieces. I, I've been to Notre Dame, and I was only able to get one or two pieces. This was when I was there to visit the Mint in 2011, and after visiting the Mint, we, Brenda Wien and I, who works in advertising, we went over to the cathedral, and we got to slip in for like 10 minutes before they closed for the day. So uh, that's been my brief time there, but absolutely, I wanted to get that medal because, you know, as a collector, as a tourist, that had special meaning and value to me. But how is this any different than, say, the relic medals that exist from items that were burned in the Great Chicago Fire? You know, looking back now, 130, 40 years ago to the fire, you know, we have some distance. And so sometimes distance legitimizes things that in the moment people seem to poo-poo and, you know, look down upon. And the only difference is – you know, this is today and this just happened versus this happened a long I, ago. But, you know, people don't look at it the same way because, well, time has passed and the tra- you know, the, the tragedy, the tragic nature of the event is sort of washed away by the well, winds of time. The, the difference between the Chicago fire and the fire at Notre Dame is that people died in the Chicago fire. There were actual fatalities, whereas as unfortunate as the recent burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral is because of its significant world historical role, I would make the case that if if you were selling relic items from the Chicago fire immediately after people had died, I would argue that that sort of blood stain stays a lot longer. No one died here. I would argue that it's deeply unfortunate, but morbid as it might be to say, it seems to me that the lack of human casualties makes this a tragedy of an entirely different and compared to the Chicago fire, I would say ultimately less important. And certainly the loss of human life is one barometer by which things can be viewed. And as you rightly say, then that loss of life colors the event in a different manner than this. But there are coins that have featured coal from the Titanic or, you know, pieces of meteorite. And I'm sure some of those have led to casualties, even though, you know, in this vast earth, there are many meteorites that are just found after the fact and, you know, they're out in desolation or something. So if we're not making a big deal now about the Chicago Fire relic medals, but we are uh, for this modern event medal where the Chicago event had lost a life and that was more touching and tragic maybe, then uh, it would seem to think that that speaks to, well, then this gets a pass. You know, let collectors decide if they want it. They'll buy it. If they don't, they won't sort of thing. And it's not stained by blood like you say, and and it wouldn't have a – Presumably a negative connotation. Me personally, and I don't know how anyone else would feel about this. I see this these French pieces that are being minted now as being completely legitimate to buy. If you want to buy it, yeah. go ahead and buy it. For me personally, as much as I, I care for Notre Dame and as important as it is, it strikes me that there are other causes worthy of donation where people's lives are on the line, which is not to say that these aren't beautiful medals and that this isn't an event that's worth commemorating. But as far as ways to donate money and causes to donate money to, I don't know that this one should take priority over any other. So we will go on record as saying that these are rather benign issues. These coins and maybe some other numismatic commemorations that are coming out at this time. And again, let maybe let the market decide. What do you think, listeners? Uh, Be sure to share your thoughts with us. You you can find our contact information online in the show notes and and other places on the Coin World website. Is this something that you would be interested in buying if you had the means? If you, you know, maybe you've been there and and you want to help contribute to the reconstruction. We're open for questions like that and thoughts around that. So share those thoughts, share your questions about any numismatic topic with us. Absolutely. We would love to hear from you and your thoughts on this topic and many others. Amos Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Coin World podcast. 
Whether you're looking for numismatic books, storage, or cleaning supplies, Amos Advantage has you covered. Visit AmosAdvantage.com today. And now, back to the show. Now, please enjoy my interview with Kevin Foley, the organizer of the Central States Numismatic Convention, where we talk about the ins and outs and background information about organizing one of the nation's largest coin shows. Enjoy. All right, we're sitting down with Kevin Foley, the chairman of the Central States Numismatic Convention. We're speaking to him here in Schaumburg, Illinois. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank Kevin. you for having me. This is the 80th Central States Numismatic Convention that's that's been put on. And you mentioned that you have worked in the CSNS for um, roughly since the, 19, the early 1980s, 1980, I think. And that's right. In your perception with all these years of experience, how has the show changed over the years? Well, the whole numismatic trade has uh, transitioned from when I, I first became involved in it. My, my first involvement was I was a dealer. I was a rare currency dealer. And when I started in the business, it was much less investment-oriented and much more collecting-oriented. And as values have gone up, it's attracted an entirely different audience who are far more interested in the investment potential, kind of as the hard assets aspect of potential investments. And especially since there's been third-party grading of rare currency, has accelerated that trend. And as values have risen, there's been less room for the casual hobbyist. So this is, I think, the transition from pure collecting to looking upon this more as an investment medium and a store of wealth has accelerated. And also, since interest rates have fallen to historically low levels and CDs and you know, traditional kinds of investments are paying virtually zero, people looking are looking at different places to park their money for potential capital appreciation. And I think that's something that's accelerated the investment aspect of the numismatic trade. That sort of investment energy that has come into the hobby in recent years, as you allude to, what effect has that had on how you run a show like Central States? Well, my philosophy of running a show is that there needs to be a broad range of dealers. And when people ask me about what I do and they're kind of surprised that there is such a thing even, and they ask me to explain a little bit about the business to them, I say, well, if you come into a, a large numismatic convention and you're a complete neophyte, it might look to you like everybody's doing the same thing. But they're really not. Some dealers specialize in silver dollars. Some dealers specialize in toned coins, no matter what they might be. Uh, in the currency trade, some people specialize in national banknotes. So in, in that regard, it's, it's a little like the medical profession, where there are people who know a lot about a very little narrow slice of the business. And what happens is that material tends to gravitate, it, it enters the marketplace sometimes with a more generalist dealer, maybe at a local coin shop, and then it moves up the food chain, so to speak, to more and more specialized people who are more and more connected with the ultimate buyers. So that's, that's one aspect of it, that people kind of don't understand what's really happening in the room. With that in mind, in the context of this Central States and, and Central States past, what is the most serious logistical challenge when it comes to organizing a show of this size? There are things people might not think of. Well, let me give you an example. Very first numismatic event I ever ran was at the old Mecca Convention Center in Milwaukee. I think that was in 1981. And naturally, I was quite nervous, and I you know, was very anal in preparing every detail and probably spent twice as much time going over everything. And uh, it was during the summer, and the dealers were moving into the hall, and it was starting to get hot in the building. And I called up the operations manager that I was dealing with, and I said, you, you really need to turn the air conditioning on. And he said, well, we don't do that unless the public is in the room. And it turned out that, you know, only a certain union member could operate the equipment and he was home. So we suffered that night. That was a detail that had never in my wildest dreams occurred to me. There are all kinds of little things that, that you have to be aware of. 
Are there local licensing regulations or reporting regulations that might deter people from having booths at the event and things like that? So we don't exist in a little bubble here. We're, we're part of a larger community and you have to be, you have to do a little research about what regulations you have to conform to. And also you have to become acquainted with what the union work rules are in the particular place if it's a union facility. The rest of it is a lot of public relations, uh, you know, interacting with the dealers and recruiting them to come to the event. And then once they're here, doing your best to provide them with a successful experience because, you know, really people have a pretty big nut to crack who come in here. If you travel from the West Coast and there's three people working for your company, it might cost you $3,000 to walk in the door here. You know, this is how people buy their homes and send their kids to college. And, you know, I feel I've got a sense of responsibility to at least give them a fair chance of, of doing well here. You know, that's my philosophy is that I'm in show business kind of in a way. You know, I'm kind of an impresario in a sense. And the better job I do in making this an attractive place for everybody to come to, whether they're a collector, whether they're an investor, whether they know next to nothing, whether they have a multi-million dollar collection, whether they're a mom and pop dealer, whether they're an 800 pound gorilla of the numismatic trade, there has to be something here for all of them. And we price our, our booths. I think the most expensive one this year was $1,295. And then you can also be in the room for $395. And there's like a food chain. And the material moves up the food chain from the, the mom and pop dealer to the more and more specialized people. And if you don't have the mom and pop dealer here to provide material to the more more advanced and more well-capitalized dealers, then it doesn't work for anybody. If you have only a carriage trade show, there's very different dynamic in the room in terms of who's doing business with whom. So it's quite a lot more than, than providing simply a physical space. You also have to facilitate trade and a, <coughs> an interaction among dealers and customers and everyone else. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. And we can't be responsible for what the market conditions are. All we can be responsible for is making an honest effort to make sure as many people as possible who are potentially serious attendees know about the event and feel that there's a reason for them to come. And on that theme of a reason for them to come, you know, this is why we have educational programs. Heritage has been very generous. Our auction company, in addition to being our auction company, they sponsor our primary educational forum. And one day we have largely numismatic talks. And then the second day we have largely local history talks. And, you know, sometimes people can get a little tired of the numismatic stuff for three or four days. That's why we have some local history talks as well. Interesting. You mentioned that obviously Central States is not in any way responsible for the, like you said, the, more, the market conditions and the larger hobby itself. Have you noticed at all collector participation on the floor? Have you noticed those numbers increase or decrease over the years? Well, because some people have reflected that fewer and fewer collectors seem to come to shows, and shows sometimes function more and more as a forum for dealers to cut deals with. I think that's a very accurate statement. When I was much younger, when I, when I was a child, you could look through your change that you'd get, and you could find interesting coins. They might not have been particularly valuable, but I can remember as a child, I worked at a drugstore in high school, and every now and then, a standing Liberty Quarter would be spent. You know, the date might have been slick, but it was... You know, it was very interesting to see things like that. And I think it's that kind of experience that got, you know, many people originally interested in numismatics. Well, that tends not to happen today. I think eBay has changed the whole structure of how people participate in numismatics. When I started as a dealer in 1977, and I would go to a show as a booth holder, Saturday was always the high attendance day because that's when ordinary working people had a day off. 
That's not the case anymore. It tends to be the first day is the heavier attendance day because now everybody's trying to be a dealer. They're what I call crypto dealers or hidden dealers. And they may not even consider themselves to be dealers. But there are a lot of people who used to simply be hobbyists who are now buying and selling material on eBay. And they're going to shows to buy material and taking it home and they're selling it on eBay. And they may not realize that they're dealers, but they really are. Before the advent of eBay, there was no such outlet for people. I think we have a proliferation of people who, whether they know it or not, really are dealers rather than simply collectors today. Do you find that the blurring of that line between hobbyist, collector, dealer, however people want to conceptualize being a numismatist, uh, do you find that the muddying of that line makes putting on a convention like Central States more difficult or easier? Well, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Internet is the enemy of shows. I'm not so sure that's the case. It's possible today to actually be a, a quite significant dealer and have absolutely no human contact whatsoever. Never leave your home. FedEx and the post office will come to pick up your shipments. You can buy everything you want over other dealers' websites, uh, you know, via eBay. You can have your groceries delivered to your home. You can have your clothing delivered to your home. You never have to leave your house anymore. Whereas when I started in the business, you had to go to shows. You had to. It was mandatory. And auctions, when I started, would have a reasonably robust attendance in the auction room. I was one of the three founders of Currency Auctions of America. And when we started, we'd have 100 people in the room. Well, today, you can come to a real high-end, significant auction. There might be eight people there. And so in the auction business, with the passage of time, a higher and higher percentage of people are sitting home, bidding real-time on their computers, looking at their computer screen, and from their perspective, it's as if they're sitting in the back row of the auction because they're seeing the auctioneer. And, you know, it used to be that you'd send a bid in by fax or you'd send a mail bid in and the auctioneer would be calling the sale. And one of the code words was the auctioneer would say, we have 200 on the book. Well, that would mean after that, the book is out. So you could go one more jump. Well, today, that doesn't exist that way quite as much. At our sale here, you can be you know, a dentist in Mumbai, <laughs> or, or you, you can be, you know, in the outback of the, the Canadian Northwest, and you've got a satellite hookup for your computer, and you can be sitting at home bidding on the sale here. So there's a much larger audience participating in auctions. I hope that's responsive to your question, because sure, I kind of lost track of what it was <laughs> by the time I no, got no, done talking. It, it very directly yeah. answers. Well, you know, another thing I might add, one thing that's kind of negative that I have noticed, one of the changes, values are much higher today than they were when I started in the business. And that's not just a factor of inflation. They're no, they're really higher. It's not just the price levels in general are a couple times higher. I started as a dealer in 1977, and I can remember that you could buy a bison note that looked like the Lord himself had made it earlier that morning for $300. You could buy a $1 educational for $100. $2 educational that was today what would be called superb. There was no such grade then when I started. Uh, that would be maybe $1,500. Well, that $300 bison note today, depending on what the last digit of the 60-something grade is, that can be a $20,000 or a $25,000 note today. Well, who in their wildest imagination would have ever prognosticated that something in the course of 40 years would go from $300 to $25,000? You know, somebody would have initiated a, 
a protective placement action to have you have you put in you know some kind of home if you had predicted <laughs> that. The point of this is though that as as values have increased, it seems that the level of ethics in the trade has declined, hmm. and that's that's something that's, that's very distressing to me personally. And I, I recall one of the very first shows I went to, bigger show, was uh, a now defunct event, the Retail Coin Dealers Association show in Milwaukee. That was an event, an event that used to travel around the uh, the Midwest, and it was managed by a fellow named Wilson Waters. And one of the old line currency dealers, V.H. Oswald from uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, who was affectionately known in the trade as Ozzy. And I had gotten his price list a few weeks before, quite frankly, to help me figure out what things were selling for in the business because I was a bit of a neophyte. And I saw Ozzy at this show and he had a particularly nice uh, $2.1891 silver certificate. And I somewhat coyly said to him, oh, I think I may have a customer for that, that he was here at the show. And he said, well, I'll take it and show it to him. And I thought that was very trusting. It was like $250, and he basically didn't know me from Adam other than that he remembered I'd asked for his price list. Well, what I didn't tell him was that my customer was another dealer there at the show. So I, I walked up to the end of the aisle and circled around down another aisle because I didn't want him to see that I was going up to somebody a few tables away. And I sold a note to the other dealer for $400. And that was Steve Michaels, who I believe is also since deceased. First of all, I liked the fact that there was such a feeling of trust. And I thought to myself, gee, this is pretty good. I made $150 in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and you feel that, and I, I think I'd be inclined to agree, that that trust, that feeling of camaraderie and trust has eroded somewhat well, since that time. It seems to me that as values have risen, a less and less trustworthy element has been attracted into the business. It's different. You've heard the term the collecting fraternity, you know, or the dealer community. Well, that sense of community and fraternity isn't quite there the same way it was when I started. And maybe it will never come back. Who knows? I, I think that there are a few dealers who are trying through Facebook oh. networks and things who oh. are making an effort to bring it back. But yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah that, be right that's true. That. But this is, you know, this is a, a trend that. You know, I've observed, and I hope I'm not being cynical about that or I, paranoid. <laughs> I, I suspect you aren't. And in that same vein, you know, the fraternity of collectors, the dealer community, things like that, what role do you see a show like Central States performing in terms of bringing new collectors and new dealers into the hobby? What role can and does a, a show like this perform well, in that regard? I recall when I was a neophyte dealer going to my first ANA convention. And at that time, that was during the so-called gold and silver boom. And I can remember waiting in the lobby for the public to go in. And there were literally hundreds of people gathered out there. And I can remember how intimidating and overwhelming it was. Over the years, I as a dealer benefited very much from the relationships I formed with other more experienced dealers. And one of the things people don't think about very much is the degree of education that goes on in the Bourse area with dealers teaching their customers about you know, how to be more informed customers. And as a dealer, I always found that the more my customer knew, the the easier he was to deal with because he he was not suspicious that I was somehow manipulating him and he knew that when I told him something that it was true. And so I think a big show like this has a role in educating people and because the more educated you become about something, the more likely you are to really, really get interested in it at a very, very uh, serious level. And that's something people kind of don't think about too much. But I think that getting them in the door has to happen first. And then I think the whole rest of the equation sort of takes care of itself. This is really a very fascinating field when you come right down to it. If you're a history major, for example, 
There's all kinds of things in here that tie in with what, what your academic history training might have been that you never realized were there. It just it kind of enriches your whole life. And in a sense, it makes you a better citizen because you, you develop more of a sense of the history of our country, why there are different kinds of paper money or why were there silver dollars? You know, what, what interests were there that made the government feel that there should be silver dollars? Why are we no longer on the gold standard? Things like that. And being involved in numismatics doesn't make you an expert necessarily, but it gives you greater insights into, you know, your heritage as an American. Or if you're interested in world numismatics, the history of those other countries. You know, these aren't just things that we buy for one amount and hold them for a while and hope to sell them for a higher amount. They're, they're like educational tools. Absolutely. To that end, one of the greatest educational assets here seems to be the the exhibitions are one of the greatest educational tools that I think a show like this offers. And this year for the first time, and which I think speaks also to the logistical questions we were talking about earlier, you know, a, a fee was levied on the exhibitors. What was the rationale behind that? And well, did that have any effect on people's interest in exhibiting? I don't think it's quite accurate to say a fee was levied no. on, on the exhibitors. Okay. The exhibit area is a very expensive operation. In the past, we give out to incentivize people and to, to upgrade the quality of the exhibits. We give out about ten, eleven thousand dollars in awards uh, based on the judging of the exhibits. And when gold was higher, it cost us like around fifty thousand dollars a year to put the exhibit area on. I think today it's it's about thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars. And the exhibit area operates at a deficit of roughly twenty dollars to $22,000. This year, well, actually last year, we created the Ray Lockwood Memorial Fund. Ray was a, a booster. Ray is now deceased. And we wanted to memorialize his participation as a, a patron of the exhibit area by having an award named in his honor. And last year, we asked people to donate $75 each to the exhibit area to fund the Ray Lockwood Memorial Award. And about two-thirds of the exhibitors did. We need to address the fact that you know, we need to be physically responsible. And uh, so you know, exhibiting is a voluntary activity. And so we decided that the, the donation was going to have to be required in order to participate. There were a few people who got bent out of shape about this, a very small minority, and quite frankly spread misinformation about this. Misinformation that was, you know, this was not just spinning things, it was actually misrepresenting what the reality was. You know, they tried to spread some uproar about this. Well, the end result is that we wound up with more exhibit cases this year than last. And the money that we've raised uh, through that is in a segregated fund that's spent only to support the exhibit area. One of my greatest disappointments over the years has been that if you look in the back of the room, hardly anybody comes to see the exhibits. And I've preached about this in my own column in the Sentinel. You know, and what I've compared it to is that some of the exhibits with a little rejiggering could be peer-reviewed articles in an academic publication. And I'm mystified as to why such a small part of our audience seems to care about this. You know, you've heard the expression, buy the book before the coin. And I recall as a dealer being amazed at how many people were spending large amounts of money on things they knew nothing about and they looked upon a book as an expense rather than an investment. But to, to get back you know, to the core of your question, we need to support the exhibit area. It costs money to put it on. The exhibitors are benefiting from it. It seems to me to be pretty logical that they might be asked to make 
the actual contribution they're being asked to make amounts to about seven or eight percent of the cost of putting the exhibit area on. So we're, we're giving a very serious financial subsidy to that activity. In terms of exhibition and in terms of the size of the show and the role in the hobby, how do you see central states interacting with and how do central states compare to something like the ANA show or the fun show? What is sort of unique about central states and how does it fit into the larger well, the schema of larger shows? I, I, let me kind of expand your question a little bit. There are what I see as parallel universes in the world of shows, and they're like three tiers. There's the Sunday show at a VFW post that might have 45 booth holders at it, all of whom are part-time dealers, and they're selling more beginner-oriented material. There's the upper tier of shows, and I, you know, there's Central States, Fun, ANA, Long Beach, and the Baltimore show. And those are, in my estimation, the five leading shows. If you, you ask what's the number six show, well, if it was baseball, they'd be about 45 games behind in, in, in September. I'm not sure what the answer to that would be. I think that larger shows will survive and do quite well. The smaller shows at the lowest end of the market, they cater to an entirely different audience. And I think they will survive and remain very vibrant. The more middle market shows, they seem on a larger basis to be imploding. So that's where I see the world of shows going. I, I don't look upon the other larger shows as competitors to our event. We do what we do, we are what we are, and they do what they do and they are what they are. And each is a little different from the other. I tend to think they complement each other because they're, they're part of a network that appeals to the same hardcore of really serious attendees and really serious upper end dealers. Like at our event, for example, there's, you know, we have, I think, a little over 300 booths here. Probably a hundred, somewhere between a hundred and 130 are what I call national dealers. They're the, the bigger players that you'll see at all the big shows, that these people virtually live on the road. And then there's another group of attendees as booth holders who are kind of you know, the feeder dealers, you know, who feed material to these other people, or they might be specialists in some niche area where they're really significant in their niche, but, you know, they're not somebody who does a huge business. These other dealers beyond the initial, you know, 125, 150 or so, they tend to be different based on what region of the country you're in. You know, at the Fun Show, for example, there are dealers there who never leave the state of Florida. And, you know, here there are people, you know, who never leave the state of Illinois or, or never leave uh, an immediately contiguous state. You know, when I talked about parallel universe of dealers, one of our booth holders here is a fellow named Randy Miller. And he puts on about a 60 booth one day show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And I go to that to market our show. And as I go around the aisles, there'll be a few of his dealers who also are booth holders at our event. But then there are other people from Wisconsin that I never see anywhere except at a show in Wisconsin. They're just these, these different parallel universes within the show business. Does that gesture to a larger bifurcation within the market and the hobby to you have large, big name, national or large regional shows, and then you have very small, like you said, VFW Hall Sunday shows. Do you think that those buying dynamics will have a big effect on the coin market? Well, let me put it this way. I, one show I go to oh, probably a couple times a year is in Albany, New York. It's an event uh, held at the Polish Community Center, sponsored by the Capital District Coin Dealers Association. And you go in that show, and it's hard to find a slapped coin. Right. And it's also hard to move around the aisles. It's almost annoying. There's so many people in it. And as you overhear conversations, there are people in there. They're real collectors. They're walking up to a dealer's booth and they say, I'm looking for a VF this or I'm looking for an XF that. And they're at the, the price level they're at. They're doing really serious 
business. You know, they might spend $500 in a year, maybe they spend 1000 You know, they're certainly not spending 20000 or sometimes a couple hundred thousand in a pop for one item, like what happened in our auction here. But they're very much a part of this market. You can't only have, you know, a market for the 1%. You have to have a mass market, I think. To that extent, in the context of central states, what work can be done and is being done to encourage a mass market? Because like you well, said, it can't be a 1% hobby. That just isn't sustainable. Yeah. So what, uh, what in your view well, can be done to we are, expand it? with time, and maybe as a representative of a... What, what do you call yourselves? The traditional media, you know, where people <laughs> yeah. hold the magazine in, in their hands. We are, quite frankly, transitioning more towards advertising electronically through Facebook. And so that I don't hurt your feelings too much, I will mention that we advertise uh, through your e-blasts and things <laughs> like that. So, Very good. We appreciate but, it. <laughs> yeah. I don't buy into the idea that we will convert the unconverted via the medium that we are communicating with them at. We've really started to get into, you know, Facebook advertising in a pretty serious way this year. And I've been very surprised at the reach of that and, you know, the number of people, we'll get feedback, the number of people who've seen one of our posts. So, you know, it's something that we can't pretend doesn't exist and we can't harken back to the way things used to be. Uh, so I think a combination of all these things is necessary. You allude to a disintegration or maybe corrosion of professional ethics in the hobby, in some sectors of the hobby. Where do you see the most serious threat coming from in regards to that sort of Well, curve? any business where people are being asked to give the merchant their money and the merchant is giving them something, some object in return, ultimately the people who are buying it, even if they're acting in their mind as a collector and they're buying it because they like it and they enjoy it, with numismatic material, it's not like when you buy a couch at the department store. You're not thinking about how much you're going to get for it when you go to sell it, when you get sick of it. Sure. But everybody is always thinking about, am I going to make at least recover my money on this. Well, there are any number of, you know, really ethical dealers in this trade who do their best to treat people fairly. There's another element here that has always bothered me, and that's, you know, these these television marketing shows. I think if you talk to anybody in the trade, the consensus is they are selling material at a level that is multiples higher than the buyer could ever hope to realize, you know, barring a runaway inflation of 15% a year, that the, the, the buyer could ever hope to realize in a secondary market sale. And what happens, and these people tend to be the less sophisticated buyers, they tend to have the least knowledge, they tend to be the most subject to manipulation and emotional decision making, and they hear very professional pitches. There's a term I like, lying by omission. And it's possible to tell the technical truth, but by leaving out a few salient facts to mislead the hearer of the information. And I think in this kind of sales mechanism, that goes on a lot. And then the purchaser, five years later, 10 years later, the kids are ready for college. They go to cash in their investment. And they go to a local coin shop. The dealer gives them some bad news. Well, nobody likes to admit I was taken. None of us do. And instead, the dealer who told them the truth, he is the villain. And he is trying to victimize them. And these people go out and they're bitter. What they thought was their kid's college fund is worth 22% of what they expected it to be. And people tend to disseminate negative information much more than positive. <laughs> they, tell their, they tell their neighbors, they tell their cousin, they tell their sister-in-law. And before you know it, there's an audience of 50 people who gets the message that coin dealers are crooks. I think you might have used the word corrosive in your question, and it is very corrosive and it undermines trust because ultimately 
This is a business based on relationships and trust. And once that is gone, that customer is gone from the business forever. So what can an individual dealer or an individual collector or an organization like the CSNS in an event like Central States, what can be done to start to repair that trust? We talk about education. For example, at this event, one of our speakers is Rod Gillis, the education director of the ANA. And his topic is uh, entitled something like, so you've inherited a coin collection, what next? How to you know, realize the greatest return on your inherited collection? And you know, I wrote about his talk a little bit in our magazine, and I said, the experienced numismatist has spent all his life building a collection. And if he started years ago, he might have, you know, over his lifetime, $150,000 invested in it. Well, it might really be worth, if properly marketed, $3 million today. But if taken to the wrong place to, I hate to say dispose of it, I'm not quite sure what the term is. There's kind of a negative connotation to that. But to, to realize the fruits of your investment, that's what You can convert that $3 million collection into you know, a $40,000 collection. Right. So you need to know where to go. You need to have some trust in who you're dealing with. And I think people need to deal with somebody who has some credentials. You know, we have in this business, the professional numismatist guild, and they take ethics seriously because they realize that if their members misbehave, the bad image rubs off on everybody in that organization. So they do police their members. And there are people who are actually expelled from the PNG because they have behaved in a way that is negative for the whole business. And on the currency side, there's the Professional Currency Dealers Association, and they do the same thing. They recognize that if one of their members behaves in an inappropriate way where he's just skirting the lines of legality, uh, and he's doing something that maybe isn't criminal, but it's certainly not fair and decent and ethical, then everybody in that organization uh, has a cloud placed over them. So I think people need to look into what are the real qualifications of the dealer they're dealing with. And, you know, with the Internet today, it's possible anybody can have a beautiful website Anybody, you know, over the Internet, you can be dealing with somebody who hasn't gotten out of his pajamas for a month and his head hasn't seen a bottle of shampoo for two months. <laughs> and, and you can think he's he's a wonderful dealer until the time that you go to sell what he sold to you. And this is one of the things where I think shows are important and will always mm. be important, because when you sit down with somebody and you look them in the eye and you ask them a few questions and whether he can answer your questions, whether he gives you sensible answers. I mean, if he's home and you're, you're communicating with him, sending him emails back and forth, he can be looking up the answer in his reference book and he may know nothing. Right. You know, you develop a rapport with people. Yeah. And that's an important thing. And I think face-to-face -face dealing is one of the best ways to protect yourself from being taken because... In my mind, for example, when I meet somebody, sometimes there's a little warning flag that goes off. And whenever I've disregarded that, someday, somehow, it's always come back to bite me. Remember the program Lost in Space? One of the characters was, his line was, Danger Will Robinson, Danger <laughs> Will Robinson. Yes. People should never lose sight of that little voice. And, and I think developing a personal relationship with a dealer is really important. That's not to say you should do business only with that dealer. You right. can have multiple sources. And you can, if you want to buy in auctions, you can rely on that dealer to advise you, perhaps to go and bid for you live at the auction. Right. So I think forming a connection with a dealer who is really knows yeah. his business, I think is probably the best defense against getting taken. And it's a wonderful resource in, in terms of building a real coherent collection. Yeah. Not only that you can be proud of, but that someday when you pass away, 
will be a real legacy to your widow or your kids. Right. It strikes me that not only the personal relationship component mm -hmm. that you talk about, but things like PNG and institutions that confer legitimacy and that have sort of scrupulous standards mm -hmm. are very important to all of this. So yeah. we, we need institutions that we can trust and that confer legitimacy. Well, that phrase you use, that confer legitimacy, and the reason they do is that that institution itself recognizes that there's a larger interest and that if they don't police the field, or at least police their members, everyone is the loser. Medical licensing boards do this in their trade. Bar associations do this in the legal trade. And you know, my daughter, for example, is a lawyer, and she gets the magazine of the Wisconsin Bar Association. Every month in the back, there's a section about disciplinary actions against mm. attorneys. Yeah. And I recall when, when her mother and I went to her swearing in before the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, it was really quite moving. In fact, I, I recall shedding a tear. It was so moving. And one of the justices said that this is the happiest day for them to welcome new people into the legal profession. And then he raised his left arm and he said, but there's a room over there that when we're done here, we're going to be meeting in and we're going to be dealing with people who brought shame to this profession and shame to themselves. Make sure you are never in that room hmm. facing disciplinary action. And anyone in any business, that's a good rule to remember. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I'll never, I'll never forget that that yeah. moment, the way the way he said that, and, yeah. and it was it was very moving. That will stay stay with me to the day I die. Yeah. Those words. And having a parallel institution or parallel set of values in numismatics mm -hmm. is unquestionably very valuable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for joining us for this look at the Central States Numismatic Society convention in Schaumburg, Illinois, an earlier discussion about the French Mint and the Notre Dame. If you, again, like this kind of content, be sure to follow, subscribe, share these, tweet them out, uh, put them on Facebook. We would be most grateful for you getting the word out so that we can continue to have fun. Hopefully, you're having fun listening. Check back with us every week week for a new episode and hopefully you'll learn something and have a good time at it right absolutely absolutely we would love to hear from you and remember to subscribe if you're enjoying the podcast and until next time happy collecting thank you for listening to the coin world podcast don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week send us your questions and feedback on facebook at facebook.com slash coin world or on twitter at coin world be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop amosadvantage.com today.